He captured our struggling prophet really, really well when he wrote this. In the middle of the journey of our life, maybe this is you, by the way. In the middle of the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood, for I had lost the right path. Now, some of you have experienced this. Some of you have you know, what it, you know what it's like to get off of the right path and end in the middle of a dark wood and, re, and, and wonder, how did I get here? Some of you have not yet experienced that. One day you might, likely you will, especially if you serve God fully. God allows us to do this. This is part of our faith growing. And last week we saw this with Elijah. Remember Jezebel Threatened to end his life, the lion roared. Elijah, so full of faith so far in his life, responded to that threat of Jezebel running in fear. And all the way from Jezreel, where Jezebel, Ahab, and Elijah were, he travels by foot all the way down to Beersheba, as south as you can go and still be in the promised land. And then he leaves his servant there and he travels another we don't know, maybe 15 miles into the wilderness, the desert, a rocky, barren wasteland, unable to sustain life. What a great metaphor for, for depression. We see a lot of them. And he gets to a broom tree, a 10 to 12 foot high bush, very sparse shade. And he sits down under that broom tree. And then a few minutes go by. And if you've ever been depressed, you know the exhaustion that Mentally, emotionally, and physically comes over you. He lays down and falls asleep saying, God, take my life. I don't even want to live. And we saw last week that there are typically in anybody's depression a lot of factors at work. There's usually not just one root cause of depression. They cluster together. And so far, we've seen four of them at work in Elijah. We've seen fear. Fear, it's one of the most prevalent roots in depression. He ran away from Jezebel, running for his life. We see isolation as he left his servant in Beersheba and then traveled by himself to that broom tree. He forsook community, those who could help him, those who could walk through this with him. And we saw pride. Pride is where Elijah's internal compass that had pointed so powerfully to God. He was a servant of Yahweh. He declared his allegiance to Yahweh. He did everything that God had asked him to do. And all of a sudden that needle swung fully onto himself. He became focused on his own life, protecting his own life, doing what he wanted to do, despairing even of life, more personal pronouns in Elijah's broom tree statement than ever seen before in his entire life from Scripture. And then we see fatigue, and fatigue is his body was just exhausted. He had gone his own way and his own power, which is sure to be depleted quickly. And where we left off last week was when the angel had said to him, verse 7 and 8, now you should have your Bibles open, hopefully you do. If you didn't bring it, there should be one right in front of you. You need your Bibles, you need to be seeing the very words of God's Scripture. And while you're turning there, let me say this, you may never have experienced depression, and you know what, I hope you don't ever. But you might, 
And if you do, I'm hoping you remember some of these principles that I'm about to introduce to you from Elijah's life. And even if you never do experience depression, I will guarantee you in almost all likelihood, you will have somebody that you love in your life that will. And how will you walk that woman, that man, or that teenager through depression? How will you do that biblically? Coming along with your arm around the shoulder, you're going to see in a minute, that's not going to do it. And telling that person it's going to be all right is not going to do it. In fact, it isolates that person even more because you utterly don't understand. How are you going to minister to somebody who is depressed? Well, we're about to see what God will do, and it's going to look a lot different, I think, than what we would think we would do. Verse 7, Arise and eat, the angel says, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. From that broom tree to Mount Horeb, probably around 200 miles, and he's walking. They averaged about 15 miles a day. That would be normally a 13 to 14 day trip. But it took Elijah 40 days. And all of a sudden, now listen, all of a sudden we're captured back in to what it looks like, what it feels like, what it is like to be depressed. It's a life of wandering. It's a life where every step seems to take all of your energy. It is slow moving. It is without focus. It feels like you're going in circles. We see 40 days that it takes Elijah to go what what normally would have been 13 to 14. And it's an unmistakable allusion back to the nation of Israel wandering and wandering, wandering 40 years until they get to the promised land, all the way from Egypt to the promised land, 40 years. And we might not be familiar with the name of Mount Horeb, but listen, it's got another name. It's called Mount Sinai. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. It's one and the same. It went by two different names. It's where God met with Moses. It's where God gave Moses the law. It was where God miraculously provided for Israel water from a rock. It was there at Mount Sinai that God passed by Moses with his glory. And he shook the mountain. The the Israelites didn't even want to be near it. Fire erupting from the mountain. No, it wasn't a volcano. They've checked. Skeptics of the Bible always check on these things. There is no volcanic mountains in that area. This was the glory of God in a thick cloud of darkness flashing with lights. And Elijah goes 40 days and look at verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And again, we see another metaphor for what it's like to be depressed. You feel like you're in a cave of darkness. You feel like you're in a dead end. There's no way to escape it. You go in and you don't want to go out. And still, Elijah, after 40 days, after the angel feeds him, I mean, come on, listen, an angel of God appeared to Elijah, spoke to him, fed him food that gave him enough strength to travel across a barren wasteland for 40 days, and still, Elijah cannot shake this depression. 
One author said, depression is a stubborn darkness. It traps you into it. Pilgrim's Progress is called the slew of despond, where you're walking through a a bog where the clay sticks to your feet. And you can't come to a depressed person and, and give them two Bible verses and think that, great, now I've given you what you need. Go out and take those verses like you do Tylenol, and you're going to be better in the morning. It just doesn't work that way. And it's interesting to note, look back in verse 9, if you would, please. It's interesting to note that Elijah didn't come to a cave. Now, you might be saying to yourself, Tim, that's what the text says. That's not what the Hebrew text says. This is transliterated from the Hebrew. In the Hebrew text, there's a definite article, which means the cave. He came to a specific, definite, known cave, which is why most commentary writers will tell you, if you look it up, that it's likely Elijah came to the very same cave that God hid Moses in, that cleft, that cavern, that cave in the rock when he passed by him in his glory. And he's in the cave... The specific cave when God said to him this question. And by the way, we're seeing God beginning to work. What are you doing here, Elijah? Friends, God asks questions all through the Bible. And he is at, whether you're hearing it or not, he's always asking you questions. But why does our omniscient, all-knowing God ask questions? Surely it's not for information. He doesn't need information. He already knows the very bottom of our hearts. He knows every thought that goes through our minds. Why does he ask? Do you know what his questions do? They go down into your heart like a probe. Not for God, but for us. And when they go down like a probe, they begin those questions to bring up what's in our hearts that we cannot see. You cannot see to the bottom of your hearts. That's what Jeremiah 17 says. By the way, Jeremiah 17 says our hearts are deceptive. You know what that word deceptive means in the Hebrew? It came into being for a number of uses, but road builders used that word. And when they would come to a mountain or a high hill and they're trying to build a road up that hill, you have to build it with switchbacks. You've been to the Pocono Mountains. You've probably seen a switchback, Blue Ridge Parkway. And when you're on a switchback, whether you're going up Morgan Hill, there's almost one there. You can't really see what's coming around the corner. That's what that word deceptive means. You look down in your heart, you can't see around the corner. Somebody's got to reveal it for you. God's questions go down into that switchback-filled heart and bring up for you what you cannot see. Elijah, what are you doing here? Causes an eruption in Elijah's heart. We're going to see what's in his heart. And what we're going to see is the fifth root of his depression called discouragement. You know, some discouragement comes from going through trial after trial. Some of you in this church seem to have been through nonstop trials. And you can see it. You can see it in your face. You can see it in the way that you carry yourself. I've seen it in the way that people sometimes are just unable to even sing and worship. Your heart's just too heavy. That's discouragement. And it's the kind of discouragement that's 
was experienced by the Israelites who were defeated by Babylon and carted 650 miles back up northeast to the rivers of Babylon. And here's what Psalm 137 says, By the waters of Babylon, there we, captive Israelites, sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows or the poplar branches of the trees, we hung up our lyres, our harps. We couldn't even sing to our God. Our hearts were too heavy. But then there's another kind of discouragement that oddly enough, now listen, this is odd, oddly enough comes after times of great spiritual victory. Elijah says, verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. And we might be saying, wait a minute, Elijah, How can you say this? You just orchestrated a national revival. You've prayed for life to come into a dead little boy and God raised him back to life. You've seen more miracles in your life than most of us will ever see. How can you say what you just said? There is a ministry principle that you need to remember. Every high wave of God's movement is followed by an equally low trough of Satan's effort to derail. Are you hearing that? Every time God works in your life, whether it's to free you from a sin, whether it's to bring you closer to Him, every time God works, friends, bank on it, Satan's coming. They are so predictable that I began at the end of retreats. Parents, you whose teens are on this winter retreat, anticipate God has moved powerfully in your teen's life. And you better anticipate that Satan's about to do something. It's so predictable that at the end of our youth retreats, I used to teach our teens how to be ready for it. Because it's going to come. We'd have, we'd have kids come back from retreats and they would be taking their music that they knew was not honorable to God and they'd be ripping CDs up. They'd be deleting it off of their accounts. They'd be getting their Bible and they'd be buried in the Bible in three weeks, two weeks, sometimes a month. They'd drop off the scene of the youth ministry radar. What on earth happened? Well, Satan happened. That's what it was. He wants to discourage. You come back and you are high on a spiritual mountain and all of a sudden your first time you sin and fall into temptation. What is this? I can't, I must not be walking with God. I give up. All that Elijah had worked for seemed to be crushed in Jezebel's death threat and it plunged him into a discouragement that slid him into depression. Now there's a reason Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that hope deferred makes a heart sick. Friends, you know this. It's better sometimes to not even hope. It's better sometimes to get to the point in your painful marriage where you just give up. Because if you begin to hope and it doesn't happen, you're worse off than you were before. Just give up, Elijah. 
Just lay down under that broom tree, walk into that dead end cave, just hide your life away. And it's right where the roaring lion wanted you to go out of the game, no longer a threat. But we're going to see one more root in Elijah's depression. It's anger. What am I doing here, God? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Here's my answer. Israel, focus, look at, look at his focus. He's not answering God's question. What are you doing here, Elijah? He begins to say, Israel has forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. In other words, God, I'm here. I'm here because of their sins. It's their fault. That's what anger does. If you've got self-righteous anger in your heart, you're seeing the faults of other people, not your own. Because you look pretty good in your anger. You look deep into spiritual depression, you're going to find almost always, if not always, a spiritual blame game, an angry blame game being played out. In fact, experts provide a little formula for depression. It says sadness plus anger equals depression. Almost all depression is laced over a burial pot of anger. In fact, one woman so angry at her husband's inability to understand her came into me. She was so bitter. She sat in my office and said, you know what? I don't feel a thing for him. That is not unique. Anger turns into resentment, which will evolve into bitterness, which will harden your heart. And by the end of the day, or that period of that cycle runs its course, you are flat out numb. I know one, I heard of one person, one man, who became so angry and so depressed, he literally did not speak one word to his wife for over a year. Anger doesn't always run hot. Sometimes it runs cold. And self-righteous anger always, always distorts our thinking. And this is what we're seeing in Elijah. Now listen, if you were in that cave with Elijah, and Elijah just spoke verse 10, and you're his friend, you might want to carefully point out to him that God asked you what you are doing here, Elijah. You might want to point out that it was Ahab and Jezebel Bell that had killed the prophets, not Israel. You're not even being accurate. There was one altar, not many altars. And you're not alone. You're not the only one left. Obadiah just told you that he had hidden 100 faithful prophets in a cave. Why? Nothing you're saying is accurate. Because that's what anger does. It distorts your thinking. Look at where he turns. Do you see the word your in verse 10? Remember, he's speaking to God. He begins to hint like Jonah that the blame goes beyond Israel to God himself. Your covenant, your altars, your prophets. Well, what am I doing here, God? Well, here's Elijah's answer. It's because Israel has done terrible things and you've not done a thing about it, including protect my life. 
Here's Elijah. Here's our mighty prophet that we have just been astounded by for 10 weeks. He's stuck in despair. He's in a cave. He's given up on life. He's blaming Israel. He's blaming God. He's an absolute mess. This is what depression looks like. And what will our God, who is so faithful to us, what will he do for Elijah? What's he going to do for us? What he does for Elijah, he will do for you. When you find yourselves under that broom tree and in that cave, here's what he does. He's going to do three things. First of all, God's going to find you. God will find you. Now, this seems so anticlimactic, Pastor Tim. We want more pragmatic things what can we do well it's not yet what we can do it's what god will do that's what god does back in verse 7 look at your text again if you would back in verse 7 we read of the angel of the lord who ministers to elijah twice friends that wasn't michael that wasn't gabriel the angel That wasn't any other created celestial being. That is the Old Testament title for Jesus Christ. Now begin to enlarge your perspective. God will find you, and he does. In the middle of the wilderness, underneath a broom tree, here comes Jesus extending his holy, perfect, righteous hand to shake Elijah awake. How do you like to be awakened from your sleep? You know, it's remarkably difficult to wake a teenager up in a good mood. (laughs) My father mastered the art of waking me up in the foulest mood possible. He would come in, throw open the curtains, pull the blankets off of my body. This is New York, central New York. We had a wood stove at one end of a large house. I was completely at the other end over the garage, which had no insulation on hardwood floors. It was cold enough to see your breath. Here comes my dad in the winter pulling the blankets off of me. And the most infuriating thing that he would do is every morning whistle the tune, it's time to get up in the morning. I hate that tune. (laughs) You even think of whistling it, I will punch you right in the head. That's not really true. But that is how my father did that. But you know what? My brother outdid him. My brother, John, I've got three brothers. John's the most Satan-filled. He, one time, I'm sleeping. He thought in self-righteousness it was time for me to be awakened. So he brought a firecracker in, lit it, placed it on my pillow, and it exploded. And when it exploded, my eyes flew open. My body lurched off the bed. I saw two sights that I will never forget. Feathers floating in the air. While a ringing, by the way, is in my ear. I do think that's why I have some hearing loss. And my brother's evil, maniacal grin on his face as he's fleeing the bedroom. (laughs) It is hard to wake somebody up in a good mood. But can't you picture... Now listen, the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Can't you picture the loving touch of Jesus wakening our mighty fallen prophet? Well, we know he's gentle, Matthew 28, Matthew 11, verse 29, rather. He is gentle and lowly in heart, offering rest for your souls. Jesus is gentle. And God came to Elijah in the form of Jesus, pre-incarnate Jesus, in the Old Testament. 
But then look at verse 9, and he's traveled across the wilderness. He's gone 40 days. He's gone to the cave of Mount Horeb. And verse 9 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. Now let me tell you something. Three times before this, the word of the Lord had come to Elijah. Chapter 17, chapter 18. And it said the word of the Lord came saying... But this is a little bit different because now all of a sudden we've got a personal pronoun. The word of the Lord came to him. Now, don't miss this. And he said, this is no longer a message from God to Elijah. This is the messenger God to Elijah. God himself has come for the first time in Elijah's ministry. He has come because his prophet is struggling. A message is not enough. You need the presence of God. We know who the word of the Lord is. The word of God, Revelation 19, 13, has a name. It's Jesus Christ. Again, for the second time, Jesus finds his struggling servant and he comes personally to him do you not think that jesus will come to you do you not think he will find you you cannot lose jesus and when you are struggling Sometimes he sends a messenger, a song, a sermon, a scripture verse. Other times he comes himself and you feel the touch of his spirit, his servant. You feel the touch of the spirit of God, God himself upon your heart. And you, you sense the overwhelming presence of God. God will find you. But there's a second way that God moves for his struggling servant, and he will move the same way with you. God will give you grace through his spirit. And when we are disobedient, you know what, God, you know this. I, I, every one of us, every one of us have disobeyed God countless times. And when we are disobedient and we are intentionally entrenched in our disobedience, sometimes, you know this, sometimes God will shoot a warning shot across our bow. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He's correcting us. He's moving us. That's even his grace. It's his love that says you cannot persist in disobedience. Let me bring your heart back. And he will shoot that shot. But when we're broken, when we're filled with despair, when we are mired in depression, friends, God moves toward us in another way entirely. He moves with a soft touch of his gentle grace. This is what Psalm is getting at. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He knows and he remembers that we are dust. Listen, we are weak. We are weak people. You cannot stay loyal to God in and of your own power. You can't, I can't. He knows that. And he comes to Elijah with that knowledge and he speaks to Elijah and he said, go out. This is a command. This is not a request. Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. Verse 11, look at your text. And behold, 
the Lord passed and by a and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke it in pieces and the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. Now look at me for a moment. Wouldn't you think to see God demonstrate his power in such a blatant, overt manner, don't you think it would just drive the depression straight out of Elijah's heart? Don't you think this is it? This is what we needed. God, you finally came. You finally showed your presence through your power. You finally did something in my life that made it overwhelmingly obvious that you're in control. That's what I needed, but that never drives depression out. That's why God's presence wasn't in it. That wasn't his answer. And he's teaching Elijah something and these three demonstrative displays of his power that were without his spirit. He is teaching Elijah something because all of a sudden, look, you've got to see this carefully. You look around and we go, wait a minute, where's Elijah? Where did he go? Well, look at verse 13. It was after the sound of a low whisper, then Elijah wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. Well, wait a minute. God said, Elijah, I'm commanding you, go out and stand at the mouth of the cave on the mount. And all of a sudden, fire and wind and earthquake come. And where was Elijah the whole time? He never moved. Because the power of God doesn't draw us out of depression. It's the presence and the grace of God. It was after the low whisper, the sound of a low whisper. You know, it's so easy in life, friends. I, I am guilty of this. I'm sure most of us are. To hunger and expect God to work through these mighty displays of power. I mean, come on. Elijah had been fed by birds for months. Miraculously. When's the last time a raven brought you bread and meat in the morning and evening? And then he goes to Zarephath and God keeps filling this jar of oil and this jar of flour every day. They didn't do anything. God did it all. And then this little boy dies and Elijah carries him up to his, his bedroom and he prays for him and life comes back in. And then he's on Mount Carmel and he prays and all of a sudden fire falls down from heaven, obliterating the bowl, licking up the water, destroying and demolishing the rocks and the dust. I mean, this is such overwhelming force. It's so easy to get our faith dependent on these outward demonstrations of power. But listen, they've never, ever, ever been the norm for God. Never. They don't build faith. The power of God will not build your faith. It's the grace and the whisper of the Holy Spirit. You know what object permanence is? Object permanence is something that develops in little children as they grow older. 
you throw the ball to them, you roll the ball to them, and they toddle after it, and they get it, and they bring it back to you, and they roll it back. And all of a sudden, that one time you roll the ball, and it gets past them, and it goes under the couch, out of sight becomes out of mind. Object permanence is when they still remember the ball is there. It's part of maturation. And it's part of how we grow in our faith as well, that we don't need God's demonstrations of power. Our faith isn't hinged on God demonstrating his power. We know he's there even when he's not working powerfully. We can hear his low whisper of grace. Our faith is built on the knowledge of who God is, not what we see. That's what brings a person out of depression. Not by might, Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. That's, Elijah, how I'm going to bring Israel back to me. You thought that fire coming down from heaven was going to bring Israel back to me? You thought that was what it was going to take? That's not what it's going to take. It's going to be when I bring my spirit to bear upon their hearts, and they will cry out for me. So have faith. Cling to my grace and trust. And Elijah comes out to the mount, comes out to the mouth of that cave when he hears that gracious whisper of God. And again, look at your text. God asks him the same exact question. And Elijah gives God the same exact rehearsed answer. And all of a sudden, listen, look at me. God has found him. God has whispered his grace to him. And he's still depressed. Don't give up on your friends when it takes them a long time to get through depression. This is the norm. It is difficult to move through it. And all of a sudden, we see the third and final way that God brings us out of depression. He will restore you, get the wordplay, on purpose. Look what it says. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint, and he says, anoint three people. You know my response to this? My response is, God, you've got to be kidding me. That's the best you've got? We are almost on the edge of our seats with outrage. This guy is suffering. God, and you don't even speak to him about it. All you do is tell him what to do. Just at least take him by the shoulders and look him in the eye and tell him that you love him and that it's going to be okay. Can't you do even that, God? Likely, listen, if you or I were God, wouldn't we have come around Elijah? Wouldn't we have patted him on the back? Wouldn't we have reminded him of how much we love him? It's a good thing we're not God. Because while the depressed person might appreciate those affirmations, they are ultimately not going to bring somebody out of depression. God, his title is Wonderful Counselor. That's Jesus. He knows exactly what Elijah needs. He goes to the source. Now listen, he goes to the very source, the very root of what's causing Elijah's depression. It's a sense that he has no more purpose in life. Well, how do you know that, Tim? We'll go back to verse 4. I'm no better than my father's. I have failed. 
All of the work that I put into this ministry has been for nothing. I don't have a purpose to live for. My mission is done. I'm an abject failure. And he didn't need a pat on the back. He didn't need empty flattering. Well, Elijah, I'm proud of you. You've done a great job. He didn't need God coming alongside him with a thank you note. He needed grace. And he needed the grace, listen, that restores purpose to your life. It convinces you that you're useful to God. God gave him assignments. And when God gave him assignments, this is God saying, Elijah, I'm not done with you. You've got a reason to live. You've got a mission that I'm about to give. You've got a purpose to fulfill. Now, friends, let me ask you honestly. Don't answer this too quickly. Do you really know why you exist on this earth? I know you could say, I'm to glorify God and make disciples of all nations. And I get that. That's true. What's your specific purpose in life? Why did God create you? Why did God, when King David died, Acts tells us, it was because he had fulfilled the purposes of God. How come you're still here? Well, that means you still have a purpose of God to fulfill. If you're alive, you're alive with purpose. When you've fulfilled your purpose, listen, God wants you to be with him. He hungers for your presence in heaven with him. He wants you to get out of this world of pain. When his purposes are done for your life, listen, you're not lasting another second. You're going home. Why are you here on this planet? What's your mission? What has he called you to do that only his grace can help you do? That is what your mission statement is. Do you know it? Most of the world doesn't. Sadly, the church isn't really much of an exception. March of 2006, I was really floundering in ministry. I had been for a few years. You know what I did earlier, a few years earlier? I actually wrote out, typed up a resignation letter. I'd had it. I was so frustrated. I'm glad I didn't submit it. I looked back at it this week, read through it. It was so filled with self-righteous anger. The same blame that Elijah had to God in verse 10. I'm glad I didn't submit it because it was, frankly, sinful. And I'm wandering and I'm wondering, God, why am I here? What do you have for me to do? Because I feel out of sorts. I was just a few months from graduating with my graduate degree in counseling and oddly enough losing my desire to counsel. It was frightening. Here I've spent all these, it took me 15 years to get my graduate degree. How's that for encouragement for those of you who are going slow? That has a direct proportion to my intelligence level. And so I'm floundering and I'm wondering what is my purpose, what is your purpose for my life? And I'm up in my office, and I'll never forget this. It was so vivid. God has branded this on my soul so that I can never, ever forget it. I'm on my knees, and I'm praying out of, out of confusion, out of frustration, and I'm going, Lord, what is it? Why am I here? What do you want me to do? I feel like there's something different for me. And all of a sudden, God spoke right to my heart, not audibly, 
So clearly, however, it was that low whisper. So clearly that you can't mistake it for anything else. This was from God. And it came with searing heat. It was one of those times where God speaks and all you could do is stand up at attention and you can't even answer God back. You just listen. And this is what God told me. He says, Tim, I created you and gave you the gifts to take my word and get it to the hearts of people and walk them in transformation. That's what I want you to do in your life. That's your mission. And all of a sudden, clarity came because I could do that. I wasn't lead pastor then. I could do that as an associate pastor. I could do that working in a secular career and serving in the church. I could do that through counseling. I could do that in a lot of ways. And all of a sudden, my life became unhinged with freedom. I finally knew I was 39 years old. I finally knew and understand what God had, why God had created me and put me on this planet. And my life became filled with focus. And I didn't figure that out from a book. It wasn't a song that I was listening to. It was simply me on my knees crying out to my God and God answering me with that low whispering spirit of grace. God's purpose for you. Have you ever asked God that and stayed there until he answered? I have to tell you, your life will flounder until he makes that clear for you. You will not have the power that you could in your ministries. And if you find yourself under a broom tree or if you find yourself in a cave of depression, friends, likely, likely you've lost your sense of God's purpose for your life. How do you find it? How do you discover it? Well, the same way Elijah did, the same way I did from the mouth of God himself. So pray and ask. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. He will make his purposes clear for your life. There is so much more to the story of Elijah. I just simply ran out of time. I don't think I've ever done that before in a series. There's too much left on the table. How God moves Elijah back into community. How he tells Elijah that he's not alone. There's 7,000 faithful beside him. How Elijah began to pour him. I really wanted, listen, I did this entire ministry to get to this point where I explained to you the importance of mentoring and discipling and we're not even going to get to it. Too much left on the table, but you're going to find so much more track through this. But listen, if you will stand in the gap, in the crumbling walls of your jobs, neighborhoods, schools, your society, you stand in the gap and say, God, I will defend your glory. If you will do that, you will likely find yourself under that broom tree. Because there is a world of maturity Awaiting that experience. As God will find you. As he will come to you personally in power. As he will draw you out of that cave with a low whisper of his grace. And how he will restore your life on purpose. And give you a mission worth living. And you might be asking yourself like I did. Well did it work? Was God successful? All you have to do is read the next verse. Look what it says. So Elijah departed from there. 
Elijah departed from there. There is a world of theology in those five words. He left the cave of depression and he lived on purpose. God knows what he's doing, friends. And if he's not coming to you the way that you think he should, develop the object permanence to know his ways are higher than your ways. Cling to him in faith and let him do his job. Lord, thank you for this series. God, I have been so encouraged. I pray that my brothers and sisters have been as well. Lord, I pray that you will pick us up. Those of our family that are under that broom tree or in depression, God, I pray that you will bring them out and rescue them and bring them out with stronger faith than they had when they went in. You know what you're doing. You can do this. We ask that you will. We love you. We thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.